This episode of Horsepower Heritage is sponsored by Model Citizen Diecast. Now, maybe you can't afford that full-size E30 M3 or that rare 71 Nissan Skyline GTR. And that's probably okay, because your garage is already chock full of other projects. And you've been turning so many wrenches, your knuckles look like they belong to a prize fighter. The last thing you need to do is muck about with another old car. And that's where Model Citizen Diecast comes in. They sell collector-grade scale model cars from manufacturers like Amalgam, Auto Art, Mini Champs, and others. They stock 143rd scale and 118th scale offerings. From streetcars to race machines, from pre-war classics to brand spanking new cars, Model Citizen Diecast has something for just about every interest and price range. Shop their online catalog at ModelCitizenDieCast.com or check out their Instagram page at Model Citizen Diecast. Model Citizen Diecast, because your inner child still wants to play with cars. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. My name is Maurice Merrick, and greetings to all of you far and wide listening from places like Royal Oak, Michigan, Plainfield, Indiana, Greenville, Tennessee, Long Beach, California, Montreal, Quebec, Hatfield, England, and Limerick County, Ireland. Thanks for supporting the podcast, and if you like what you hear, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Would you believe Horsepower Heritage is ranking among the top 5% of podcasts worldwide? Now that sounds a lot bigger than it really is because there are a huge number of podcasts. But we are moving the needle every week and I'm having a blast putting this thing together. So thank you. A couple of things from the mailbag before we get started. Nick wrote to say that he really likes the show and he wanted to ask for a few Horsepower Heritage decals. You may remember I offered those up a couple of episodes ago. Thanks for your support, Nick, and those decals are on their way to you. Aaron wrote to say that in episode 7, I said incorrectly that Winston Churchill was given an 80-inch Land Rover for his 80th birthday. You're absolutely correct, Aaron. It was actually one of the new 86-inch wheelbase models that Churchill received. And I caught that little mistake myself, but it was too late to change it. So thank you. And finally, Chris wrote to say that in last week's episode, Five Motorsport Events You Must See Before You Die, he couldn't believe that I didn't include the 24 Hours of Le Mans. And in fact, Chris, I had planned to include Le Mans, but the problem is that it's a really tough race for spectators unless you're going full VIP status, and that's expensive. And my goal for the episode was to give people ideas for signature events where they could really get their money's worth. But of course, Le Mans is the greatest motorsport event in the world. So there you go. I'm with you on that. And maybe we'll talk about Le Mans in a future episode. All right. Well, I have an unusual show for you today. It's about a slow, ugly little car that ended up representing both the worst efforts of humanity and the best hopes for the future. And the car is called the Trabant. So with that, I give you the Cold War car. Let's hit it. If you were an unlucky resident of the town of Zwickau, Germany, on June 30th, 1945, you might have wondered how much more misery you could take. 
you would have already endured 12 years of Nazi party rule, six years of total warfare, allied bombing raids on the nearby oil fields and the Audi factory, and then the descent into chaos as American forces pushed deeper into Germany. But that was just the beginning, because on June 30th, 1945, elements of the United States Army's 89th Infantry Division handed over control of the region to the Soviet Red Army. Adolf Hitler had committed suicide in the Fuhrer bunker on April 30th. On May 8th, Feldmarschall Wilhelm Keitel had signed the unconditional surrender of German forces, bringing the war to an end. But the peace was not so simple. Five months earlier, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, and Joseph Stalin had met in Yalta on the Black Sea to negotiate the post-war order. And it was at Yalta that Germany's future was decided by the Allied powers. And the town of Zwickau was destined to be stuck in the Soviet zone. There was little that Roosevelt or Churchill could say about it. The Nazis had exacted a heavy toll on the Soviets. 1.1 million were killed at the Battle of Stalingrad alone. Roosevelt and Churchill also faced a massive Soviet force poised in the east, triple the strength of American and British forces. After six years of total warfare, there was no sympathy for the aggressors. So a large part of Germany had to be sacrificed on the altar of peace. And the final nail was put in the coffin in August of 1945 at Potsdam, Germany. Roosevelt was dead, and Harry S. Truman had become the President of the United States. Winston Churchill had been succeeded that July by Clement Attlee. So these two men took up from their predecessors, met with Joseph Stalin, and decided on the final partition of Germany. If the morass of German partition wasn't enough, consider that within four days of their meeting, a B-29 superfortress named the Enola Gay would drop the first atomic bomb on Hiroshima, Japan. Meanwhile, tough luck if you lived in Zwickau. You were officially behind the Iron Curtain. By 1949, the Soviet-controlled part of Germany was called the German Democratic Republic, which was anything but democratic. It was a Soviet puppet state ruled by German socialists left over from before Nazi rule. And in the free world, it was simply known as East Germany. By now, you're asking what this geopolitical chess game has to do with a car. Well, I'm getting to it, so be patient because communists needed transportation too. But let's take a minute to see what was going on at that time in the West. By the late 1940s, Mercedes-Benz had begun to recover from the war. Almost immediately, they were building a commercial truck line and modest passenger cars, like the 170, held over from before the war. By 1954, the Mercedes commercial line was finding a place in markets all over the world, and the company had built the 300 SL, arguably the world's first supercar. Meanwhile, BMW was building the Model 501, a massive luxury car that was dubbed the Baroque Angel because of its styling and extravagance. And Volkswagen was building the Beetle and the Type 2. But in the Soviet occupation zone, the automobile industry was strictly a state enterprise. BMW's Eisenach factory was in the Soviet zone and it was taken over. And they were building a car called the EMW, a copy of pre-war BMW models like the 326 and 327. And at Audi in Zwickau, the same thing was happening. And there was another car, the Wartburg. It was luxurious by communist standards 
and actually, it was a fairly well-built car. Wartburgs were even exported to the West. And then there was the Trabant. A wagon for Menschen, die Freuzien. Trabant set Homburg. From the People's Automobile Works of Sachsenring in Zwickau. The name Trabant means satellite or celestial body in German, which was meant to conjure images of the glorious triumph of the Soviets putting the Sputnik satellite into orbit. But it's more likely that it just made people think of the fact that East Germany was a puppet satellite nation of the Soviet Union. It was this car that embodied the dismal reality of life in East Germany. In fact, it was the punchline to the absurd joke of a centrally planned economy. They started building the Trabant in 1957. It was a two-door, four-seat, three-box design. Mittelpunkt internationaler Messen. Favorit der 600 Kubikzentimeter Klasse, der Trabant 601. Frontantrieb mit luftgekühltem Zweitaktmotor, vier Gänge voll synchronisiert. He's telling you about the Trabant's wheezy 26-horsepower 500cc air-cooled two-stroke engine and its four-speed gearbox, front-wheel drive, and independent suspension. The tiny 6.3-gallon fuel tank, not that you'd be driving very far, was mounted under the hood, right above the engine, because the fuel system had no pump. It was gravity-fed. The Trabant had a steel unibody, which was then fitted with panels made of a material called duroplast, a plastic sort of like Bakelite. Duroplast was made from sheets of recycled cotton fiber impregnated with a phenolic resin powder. In fact, East Germany relied heavily on recycled materials throughout its economy. They would scrounge whatever they could. To form a body panel, they would unroll the cotton batting onto the table of a hydraulic press. And over the cotton, they would lay sheets of a special resin paper. After eight minutes in the press at several hundred degrees, out would pop a fender or a roof section. It was a simple car, but building a Trabant was intentionally labor-intensive and inefficient because that's what the government had decided. Even if they had wanted to build more cars, there was a shortage of raw materials. The Zaxxon Ring factory couldn't just buy what they needed on the open market because there was no open market. They would get the allotment of materials the bureaucrats told them they were entitled to, and that was that. The entire economy was based on successive five-year plans with maybe a hundred people deciding the direction of nearly all enterprise in the country. If you wanted to buy a Trabant, it was very simple. You would submit your request in writing. Unfortunately, for every Trabant that the factory could build, there were 43 people who wanted one, so the waiting list was up to 10 years long. The closer you lived to Berlin, the more favored you were by the party, and the more likely you were to receive your car, maybe in eight years instead of 10. And you would have paid the equivalent of about $15,000 for that car. And if you couldn't wait 10 years for that car, there was always the black market at triple the price. But it was risky to buy a car on the black market because the Stasi, or Ministry for State Security, was one of the most feared secret police organizations in the world. And it was notorious for its extreme paranoia not just for spying on millions of its citizens, but also for forcing those people to turn their neighbors in for anything, anything that might be a threat to the state. For every 63 East Germans, there was at least one Stasi informant among them. Even husbands and wives spied on each other. So if you were caught buying something on the black market or someone decided that they didn't like the fact that 
you'd gotten a turbant while they were still five years down the list, you could be arrested and charged with theft of socialist property. So you can see why the black market price of a turbant was so high. It was a big risk. Overwhelming state control had created another problem for the East German government. From 1949 to 1961, three and a half million people emigrated to the West, and they were overwhelmingly young, well-educated professionals and skilled blue-collar workers. It was a brain drain that threatened to destabilize an already rickety economy, ironically, the best in the Soviet Union. The authorities responded to the brain drain by strengthening the border between East and West Germany, and then they did something that shocked the free world. In August of 1961, they began to build the Berlin Wall, 87 miles of concrete block, 12 feet high, fortified with a no-man's land of deep sand, electrified fencing, barbed wire, floodlights, and guard towers. The sand was there to slow people down and to show footprints. The idea was to leave evidence of any escape attempt and punish the guards in case they got soft and didn't shoot. The city of Berlin was deep inside East Germany. When the Allies took the city at the end of the war, it had been divided into four sectors, American, British, French, and Russian. But for years afterwards, it was the easiest place to defect to the West. You could enter a building in the Russian sector, make your way to the basement, walk down a corridor, and climb another set of stairs, and come out onto the street in the American sector. It was difficult to prevent escape from such a high-density urban environment. And in the communist mind, the attitude was that since the state provided for every need of every citizen, each person owed a significant debt to the state, and they had no right to skip out on that debt. Imagine living in a country where your own leaders not only held you for ransom, but decided how much you could earn every year. How could people resist the urge to escape to freedom? Because on the other side of that barbed wire, West Germany had gone from a bombed-out husk in 1945 to the envy of Europe by the end of the 50s. Low taxes, high capital investment, and high export values had helped create what became known as the post-war economic miracle. The whole world was eager to buy Mercedes-Benz cars and trucks, Telefunken hi-fi sets, and Leica cameras. In 1951, Mercedes cleverly gave one of their Model 300 limousines to West German Chancellor Konrad Adenauer for official state use, and ever since, that model has been known as the Adenauer. In a few short years, Mercedes and Porsche were campaigning cars like the 300 SL, and the 550 Spider in prestigious motorsport events around the world. United States Army Specialist 4th Class Elvis Presley had a Volkswagen and then not one but two BMW 507 Roadsters during his tour of duty in Germany with the 3rd Armored Division. Legendary German precision and quality was in high demand around the world and their auto industry led the way. But back in the East... The lucky few were loping along in their trabants, with that anemic two-stroke clattering away and belching enough smoke to kill every mosquito within miles. In 1963, the Zaxxon Ring Motor Works released an updated trabant, the Model 601. They even added an open-top version with no doors, sort of the Eastern Bloc Fiat Jolly. To be fair, the Trabant had some relatively modern features in 1957, like the independent suspension and front-wheel drive. But by the early 1960s, it was becoming obsolete by any standard, especially that engine. 
The Trabant 601 is the model everyone thinks of because it was built until 1990. Propaganda films in the 60s even tried to make it look like a competent rally car, but nobody was fooled. Not when there were Mini Coopers and Saabs absolutely shredding the European rally circuit. The 1960s and 70s were largely the same old story for East Germany and the Trabant. More five-year plans, more Stasi intrusion into the mundane lives of people just trying to survive, and more time on the waiting list for a car. And a man named Eric Honecker ascended to head of state as the general secretary of the Socialist Unity Party of Germany. Honecker was a lifelong communist dating back to the 1930s, and he was as intractable as they come. So life under the grayscale of authoritarianism dragged on. But by the 1980s, the Soviet Union was teetering on the brink. They'd spent blood and treasure in a brutal war in Afghanistan to prop up a communist revolution there, only to leave empty-handed. They'd been weakened by economic stagnation, outspent in the arms race, outmaneuvered in their attempts at expansion, and left in the dust by the free world. The climate was desperate, and the iron fist that was once able to grip hundreds of millions of people in its clutches had irreversibly loosened. In the mid-1980s, one by one, the Soviet republics voted to declare their independence. On June 12, 1987, President Ronald Reagan stood before the neoclassical columns of the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin. Built in the 1780s, the gate has been a silent witness to history ever since. A victorious Napoleon passed through it in 1806. When Hitler rose to power in 1933, thousands of jubilant Nazi brown shirts marched under it. And it was the site of John F. Kennedy's landmark speech in 1963 at the height of the Cold War, and just two years after the Berlin Wall had been built. There are many people in the world who really don't understand, or say they don't, what is the great issue between the free world and the communist world. Let them come to Berlin. The gate was just meters from the Berlin Wall. And on that day in 1987, Ronald Reagan laid down the challenge. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, Come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. As the leader of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev was willing. But in East Germany, Erich Honecker was not moved. He desperately tried to hold on to power, but was finally ousted in October 1989. A worker in the Trabant factory had scrawled on a chalkboard, Kein Gnade für Honecker, no mercy for Honecker. Three weeks after Honecker departed, the Berlin Wall fell. And at that moment, the lowly Trabant became a symbol of freedom because thousands of East Germans climbed into their little cars and drove to the West. Television screens all over the world showed scenes of people in their Trabants driving as free people for the first time in their lives. Later, an artist named Birgit Kinder painted a mural on one remaining section of the Berlin Wall. It was a scene showing a Trabant crashing through the wall. 
The fall of communism also meant the end of the Trabant. It had been long obsolete. Once many of those people had left the East in their Trabants, they abandoned the cars on the streets of West Germany. It's become a curiosity, even lovable, to people who never had to live in the closed society that created it. The Trabant has been the subject of ridicule, but in a way, when you look back, you have to respect it a little bit, because it was the best that people could do under the thumb of that system. And they did make it work. The Trabant is a good reminder that cars are an expression of our personal freedom. Just turn the key and go. No one is going to stop you. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. Don't forget to subscribe, click that five-star rating, and leave me a review. All of those things will help me reach more gearheads like you. Until next time, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening. <laughs>